chip wars heating up. The U.S. revealing new rules to curb Beijing's chip access. That's expanding on the CHIPS Act passed last year. But not all parties are convinced. South Korea noting the rules won't force companies to close their China facilities. Beijing taking matters into its own hands, with officials unveiling their own set of rules. And one company finding ways to play both sides. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Chip wars between the U.S. and China continue. Semiconductors or microchips are what power our modern way of life, from our phones to computers to OpenAI's ChatGPT. And the U.S. is making sure China doesn't get a leg up. The Commerce Department on Tuesday proposing new rules to limit the amount of chips ending up in the hands of adversarial countries like China. That's following the CHIPS Act passed last August that put aside $52 billion to advance America's chip capacity, from research and development to manufacturing. The new rule includes a $100,000 spending cap on advanced capacities in China. That's part of Washington's goals to thwart Beijing's ambitions. Meanwhile, Beijing is taking matters into its own hands. That's by giving subsidies and state-backed research to hand-picked firms like SMIC, Huawei and Huahong Semiconductor. Well, some companies are trying to make the best of both worlds. U.S. chipmaker NVIDIA is tweaking its flagship product so that it can be exported to China. U.S. regulators last year pushed new rules that would bar NVIDIA from selling its two most advanced chips, the H100 and A100, to China. That's over national security concerns. Those chips are needed for AI development, such as OpenAI's ChatGPT and more. NVIDIA's answer is the A800, which doesn't have the same capabilities as the flagship ones, but allows the chips to be sold legally to China. But not all parties are convinced. South Korea saying the new U.S. rules will not force companies to shut down their China factories. That's because the world's largest and second largest memory chip makers, both based in South Korea, have chip production facilities in China. While the new rules will limit chip growth in China by 5 percent for funding recipients, it does not restrict investment in technology upgrades or equipment replacement. That's according to South Korea's trade ministry. This comes as both companies invest in the U.S., building plants worth billions of dollars. That's looking for U.S. funding under the CHIPS Act. Ukraine taking yet another strike from Russia, this time right after Xi Jinping put out what Beijing calls his peace proposal. NTD's Sam Wang has the latest. On Wednesday, Russian missiles hit a residential block in a Ukrainian city, killing and injuring civilians. Footage shows chart apartment buildings in ruins, with smokes and flames billowing over the shattered windows. Firefighters rush onto the scene, evacuating injured civilians from the rubble. Russia also launched a swarm of drones into Ukraine overnight, killing at least four people near Kyiv in a display of force. Both attacks deployed shortly after Chinese leader Xi Jinping introduced his so-called ceasefire proposal for Russia and Ukraine. Despite Beijing's attempt to frame itself as a peace broker, the West sees Xi's visit to Moscow as a boost for Putin's war. China feels no responsibility to hold the Kremlin accountable for the atrocities committed in Ukraine. And instead of even condemning them, uh, it would rather provide diplomatic cover for Russia to continue to commit those very crimes. Meanwhile, Japan is strengthening its ties with Poland. Following a visit to Kyiv on Tuesday, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida took a trip to Poland, pledging to provide support to help neighboring Ukraine. 
The Polish minister expressed concern regarding China's support for Russia. The Chinese leader's visit to Moscow is very worrying. The China-Moscow axis is dangerous. Poland is a crucial ally of Ukraine in Central Europe. Warsaw has taken a major role in supplying Kyiv with weapons in an effort to counter Russia's onslaught. Sam Wong, NTD News, New York. And following Russia's strikes on Ukraine post Xi Jinping's peace talks, what should U.S. foreign policy look like going forward? We hear from Alex Gray, former National Security Council Chief of Staff under President Trump and current senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. Alex Gray, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me again. I want to start with this Xi and Putin meeting in Moscow. It seems this was on the backdrop of diplomacy or peace talks in terms of Ukraine. They both did sign a statement talking about that. But right after, we're seeing Russia escalate with drones and missile strikes in Ukraine, killing students and civilians. How should we be reading this? Well, I think that like so much of Chinese foreign policy, uh, it's totally what comes out of Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party's mouth is very different from their actions. And that's been consistent, whether uh, it's their behavior on human rights, their behavior in the South China Sea, their behavior with regards to foreign interference um, across the world. You can't believe a word that the Chinese Communist Party says. And, and that's been buttressed by decades of behavior belying uh peaceful words. And so I think we have to, as Reagan would say, trust but verify. Um, and, you know, in this case, actually, I would I would change that a little bit and say, uh, you can never trust what the Chinese Communist Party says, but you should always be watching and verifying what their behavior is and contrasting that with the words that come out of Xi Jinping's mouth. And Xi Jinping, from day one, has been buying Putin's oil. He has been keeping the economy afloat of the Russian Federation. He has been uh, behind the scenes. I think we have pretty good evidence that they have been providing um, materiel that has contributed to the Russian war effort. And Alex, you did mention China's foreign policy. So seeing what's unfolding now, especially with all of the actions, not just the words, what should the U.S. foreign policy be going forward? We need to acknowledge, again, a very unfortunate failure of American intelligence. Two, we need to acknowledge that China, Russia, and to a lesser extent, Iran, are building an axis um, to, to try and change the traditional U.S order globally. And we need to acknowledge that and we need to act accordingly. That means, um, you know, yes, we need to be resisting uh, Putin's behavior in, in Ukraine. Um, I, I believe that there are things that we need to be doing constructively to help the Ukrainians resist that. Um, but mainly, we need to be working to deter Xi Jinping uh, in East Asia. And that means we have to learn the lessons of the failures of deterrence in Ukraine. Um, you look at the things that Joe Biden did leading up to the invasion of Ukraine, mixed messages, um, showing weakness, unilaterally deciding to cave to Russia on an arms control agreement, uh, ending the Trump administration's resistance to the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. These were all the types of decisions that emboldened Vladimir Putin to do what he never did under Donald Trump's leadership, which was to go into Ukraine as a full-scale invasion. Xi Jinping is watching. He's learning lessons. He's calculating whether there's the same uh, sort of deter lack of deterrence uh, as it relates to Taiwan. And we need to be 
watching and learning from the mistakes that were made in 2021 and 2022, and uh, hopefully implementing a much more effective deterrence policy against Xi Jinping in Taiwan. And on that note, what should the U.S. leadership's message be now to signal into the world, to really signal that deterrence, as you mentioned? Well, the message should be we unequivocally, and this is where I think the changing our uh, policy on strategic ambiguity does make some sense, because I think being very clear as it relates to Taiwan, that we will no longer uh, leave it to Xi Jinping's imagination, whether we'll intervene or not, being very clear that for us, uh, the continued sovereignty of Taiwan is an absolute American imperative. I think being clear about that, Joe Biden repeatedly saying, we're going to be ending strategic ambiguity and we will defend Taiwan. That, that's fine. But what we're seeing now, what Xi Jinping is seeing from the United States, whether it's our defense budget, whether it's, it's acting uh, in ways that are, are you know, focusing more on climate change and, and ancillary issues than on hard power and, and real deterrence, those are all signs of weakness. Those all counteract any effort that we could have made um, through through a, a more you know hardline policy on strategic ambiguity. That's all counteracted by the other things uh, that the Biden administration has been doing in this area. Alex Gray, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. A scenic spot in the Pacific Ocean at the center of battle between world powers. A Chinese state-run company winning a major bid in the Solomon Islands. It's for a multi-million dollar contract set to upgrade an international seaport in the country's capital city. The port reconstruction deal is part of a $170 million project. And China's civil engineering construction company will head it off. An official with the Solomon Islands Infrastructure Ministry revealed the company had been the sole bidder. The plan covers upgrading roads and wharves, areas where ships can dock and upload their cargo. The Solomon Islands awarded the roads portion to the same Chinese company back in 2022. But the project is sparking concerns overseas. The Solomon Islands struck a security pact with Beijing last year. Since then, the U.S. and allies like Australia, New Zealand and Japan have suspected China has military motives, namely that it wants to build a naval base in the region. The Solomon Islands and China have denied the deal would allow a naval base. But why does the island nation hold so much strategic importance? During World War II, islands in the area played a major role between the Allies and Axis powers. Japan's occupation of those land masses created a defensive buffer and gave Japan control over East Asia and the Southwest Pacific. When the U.S. later gained control, the shift turned the tide of the conflict. As for Beijing, a Solomon Islands naval base would also give China a place to refresh troops. With fears of a Chinese base in its backyard, Canberra is also reviewing Chinese activity on its own soil. Following a parliamentary committee's recommendation and a review by the nation's Defense Department, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has confirmed his government will review its 99-year lease of Darwin Port to another Chinese company. The seaport serves as an important gateway and strategic resource hub. It was leased to China's land bridge in 2015 for over 360 million U.S. dollars. Reports have revealed that some Chinese state-owned shipping companies have their own paramilitary abilities, including in-house militia. 
and that Beijing could mobilize those troops. The Australian Prime Minister also said he would cancel contracts with Chinese state-owned companies that aren't in the national interest. The U.S. Navy flexing its muscles in the South China Sea in an effort to counter the Chinese regime's growing assertiveness. Here's more. An American aircraft carrier is docked for a four-day visit in the Philippines. The USS America just completed a joint exercise with Japan's maritime force. After passing through the South China Sea en route to the Philippines, Chinese vessels were spotted, but no conflicts broke out. The two countries are currently locked in a territorial dispute over islands in the oil-rich sea. China considers almost all of the South China Sea as its own. That claim ruled invalid by an international court. Back to the U.S. assault carrier, the ship can accommodate more than 3,000 troops. Captain Shockey Snyder described the visit as part of a normal spring patrol the ship conducts each year. He also spoke about it serving a greater purpose. Any Navy, uh, any of the U.S. naval ships uh, are free to operate uh, anywhere in international waters. Um, and we do that so the, the waters can remain free for all countries to use. It's the first time the vessel has docked in the Philippines to rest and recuperate. It's scheduled to depart on Thursday. The Philippines is an important U.S. ally in the region. Washington has access to nine military bases scattered across the Philippines. The nation's president recently welcoming a U.S. presence at four of them. One of those bases is located in a province facing the South China Sea. Unrestricted warfare. This is how some experts define the West's battle with the Chinese communist regime. They say it goes beyond conventional war. Electromagnetic pulse weapons, or EMPs, are nuclear bomb-related arms. China has them at the ready and they're capable of throwing America's electrical system into jeopardy. NTD's Sam Wong brings us more. Unlike other nuclear weapons, EMPs don't cause physical harm, at least not right away. But if one single nuclear bomb detonates above the atmosphere, hundreds of miles above ground, the electromagnetic pulse that blasts would generate could disable all power grids along the eastern seaboard. Now, if there was ever an attack on mainland United States, Two to three small EMP weapons, if detonated, could basically shut down the United States electrical grid for months, even years. In an interview with NTD's Don Ma, EMP expert William Fortune explained that around 90% of the U.S. population would vanish in the first year, following the destruction of the nation's power infrastructure. Where would you get your water a day from now? Where would you get your food a week from now? If you are on, I'm on medication, I have a mild heart arrhythmia, where would I get that medication? All of these things together add up to disaster. For years, China has seen EMP weapons as a crucial component of its military development. Here's what Fortune said when asked if China is capable of initiating such an attack. Now, does China have the capability to do this to the U.S. To, for EMP attack? Oh, my attack? gosh, yes. China has been aggressively researching this. So a lot of reports on this. And on top of that, according to a former U.S. Air Force Security Forces officer, Washington has no countermeasure in place for a potential EMP attack from Beijing. If true, that makes the U.S. highly vulnerable if Beijing were to launch an attack. For personal electronic devices, proper shielding can prevent them from getting disabled by an EMP attack. Sam Wan, NTD News, New York. 
Coming up, a look at Beijing's infiltration in the U.S. But what exactly is the Chinese Communist Party targeting? We spoke to investigative journalist of the Daily Caller, Philip Lenziki, for details. They engage in what we call elite capture, going after influ influential individuals um, of other nations or relevant organi organizations. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. The Chinese Communist Party's influence campaigns operating here in America. How high up do they go? And who's the target of this elite capture? We hear from investigative journalist at The Daily Caller, Philip Lanziki, for more. Philip Lanziki, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So you have a piece out recently. You're noting how President Biden was at an L.A. gun rally, and he was actually posing for a photo with a member of an alleged Chinese intel front group. So tell us about what you found. That sounds like a big deal. What happened here? Sure. Yeah. So what, what occurred was that last Tuesday, so we're talking about March 14th, Biden was in uh, Monterey, California. And during this time, he announced an executive order. So this was actually, if you want to call it anything, it would be an, an anti-gun rally. Um, and during the speech, sitting uh, front and center was an individual, and uh, his surname is Ma, and his given name is uh, Shu Rong. And he goes by the name of Derek, apparently. And so he, sitting front and center during this entire speech was this man. And afterwards, Biden went through the crowd, he was mingling, and he stopped to have uh, some type of conversation and take some photos with this individual named Ma. And uh, what's concerning about this is that we've previously, uh, actually quite recently, reported on um, this individual's uh, membership in two organizations. Uh, one is called the China Overseas Exchange Association, and the other is the China Overseas Friendship Association. And why they are important is that they belong to a Chinese government agency called the United Front Work Department which um, our government has identified as a Chinese intelligence service. They engage in what we call elite capture, going after influ influential individuals um, of other nations or relevant organ organizations. And on that note, you mentioned elite capture, and you've done a lot of different investigations on the alleged CCP ties to a lot of, say, government officials. How far up does this go? What are some of the most notable cases you've looked at? Our investigations have, have shown, for instance, um, very concerning ties between individuals such as uh, President uh, Biden's appointee for the CIA, and that's, that's William Burns. Uh, what we found was that while uh, Burns was the president of a think tank in Washington called the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace between 2015 and 2021, um, during that time, that organization employed um, at least 20 members of the Chinese Communist Party and over a dozen individuals who worked for uh, alleged front groups serving um, traditional Chinese intelligence services, such as the Ministry of State Security. Um, and this uh, organization that he was um, heading, so Carnegie, um, they were uh, organizing trips for congressional staffers to China that included um, these uh, members of alleged uh, Chinese intelligence groups. And you know, during that uh, time, uh, some of these individuals also um, believe it or not, it's really kind of hard to even wrap your head around at this point, they worked on government grants for nuclear warfare. Um, so who knows what all came of that, but uh, th this is extremely concerning stuff that we're looking at. 
And Philip, you mentioned California, and I think one of your main pieces that's been getting some buzz is your work on Rep. Judy Chu. So tell us what you've found in that area. You've been on the show before, but what have you found since then? What we found uh, really um, came into sharp relief, I think, especially based on the uh, subsequent denials. Um, and so what we originally identified was her membership in several organizations which have uh, either a leadership or direct ties to the United Front Work Department. One of these organizations, the Forum for Peaceful Reunification of China, she was made the honorary chairwoman of this organization. And the uh, US-China Economic Security and Review Commission, this is a US government agency, has identified this organization as a United Front front group. Um, it, basically focuses on uh, trying to tamp down any type of um, hopes or, or dreams for uh, Taiwan's um, um, independence. Not that it doesn't already have that already, but um, this group uh, in 2019 made her apparently a member of its of its leadership. And Judy Chu came forward and, and denied this in a Washington Post uh, article. And um, she said she'd had never had contact with this organization. Well. Unfortunately, the photographic evidence suggests otherwise. We have photos of her accepting uh, a certificate of, of appointment. What about, say, support? Has there been any congressmen that maybe are implementing new legislation based on your reporting? Has there been any movement in that area? Texas Republican Representative um, Luttrell uh, co-authored a, a bill which will be, which was his first, is my understanding, and that was to uh, rewrite the rules for the House to, to prohibit membership in an organization uh, which has uh, ties to the United Front Work Department um, or whose board members um, have such ties. We'll see if it's, if it's adopted or not, but the fact that uh, they're taking interest in that along with uh, you know six or, or, or more other members of Congress, I, I think is splendid. Well, Philip Lenzigi, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And over in mainland China, sandstorms are shrouding Beijing and northern China, and air pollution is soaring off the charts. The multi-day sandstorm blanketed buildings and roads in a thick cloud of orange dust. Wednesday, the air quality index reached a level considered hazardous to human health. Now more than 37 times the daily average guidelines set by the World Health Organization. Visibility remains poor in many areas. But residents in Beijing say the weather hasn't hampered their daily routines much. In terms of effects from the sandstorm, there is the smell of dust on the subway. But when I go outside, I can't feel it that much because the subway entrance is very close to my home. The impacts are not that great, but can still feel the effects of it. The inclement weather marks the third sandstorm this month. Beijing is regularly hit with sandstorms in the spring with the smog made worse by industrial pollution. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.